welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockfire. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. In late 1957 and early 1958, 19-year-old Charles Starkweather went on a spree of crime and murder through the American heartland, much of it accompanied by his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, that would leave 11 dead, including Carol's own parents and toddler sister. The crime sent shockwaves throughout the world and became a cultural phenomenon, inspiring numerous songs and films, including Natural Born Killers, Badlands, and the song Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen. Most saw them as a murderous and callous Romeo and Juliet, hell-bent juvenile delinquents in love, both complicit. Starkweather received a death sentence and died in the electric chair. Carol Ann was convicted of first-degree murder and would spend nearly two decades behind bars. But there were a flurry of unanswered questions, such as, how complicit was Carol Ann in these crimes? Was it justice that was sought or vengeance? And was a not only completely innocent teenage girl, but an actual victim found guilty for crimes she didn't commit? New York Times bestselling author and Edgar Award winner, Harry N. McLean set out to answer these questions with his new book, Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America. Harry grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, where the crimes took place and had ties with the victims as well as Starkweather and Fugate. And today, we are absolutely delighted to have him on the show to discuss these crimes, their cultural ramifications, and the complicity of Carol Ann Fugate. Welcome, sir. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this is a deeply personal book, more than just a true crime story. It's also part memoir, part history of Nebraska, and part examination of American culture. But in the end, it seems like you wrote it to examine this tragic event that shook your own hometown to its core and decide for yourself whether this young girl, Carol Ann Fugate, was complicit in these murders or not. Can you tell us a little bit about that process of examination for you? Well, what happened was I was actually working on another book, a, a, a novel, and uh, at about that time it was... Uh, February of 2020, the pardon board in Nebraska refused to grant Carol Fugate a pardon. And that kind of caught my attention. I've looked at the case over the years and kind of stayed away from it on purpose. I walked up to it real close about 20 years ago and, and veered off at the last second. But this pardon thing kind of hit me at the right moment. And I went on and uh, YouTube and looked at a at a interview that she had given it was somebody like Dateline uh, quite a while ago and she was very dramatic and right in the middle of it when they were when they were talking to her about Bruce Springsteen's song Nebraska where Bruce says uh, basically we had us some fun meeting he and Carol she breaks into tears and said fun you think that was fun and just kind of falls apart and I said that woman is either um, a great actress, or she's telling the truth, she's innocent. And then I started focusing on her innocence or guilt. And um, what I grew up in Lincoln, and I always knew that the town and the state considered her to be guilty of murder. Um, and I realized, I, I read what there was to read um, and looked at the movies and so forth and went back and read some newspaper articles. It had never really been looked at totally objectively. So like stone cold, as if you knew nothing about it. And I have a history as a magistrate and an arbitrator. And that's what I do for a living. I hear cases. One person tells me this, another person tells me that. My job is to sort it out and to say, here's what I think happened. That perspective had never been brought to the case in general, but particularly to Carol's guilt or innocence. And that that kind of hooked me uh, and and pulled me in over what I knew were going to be 
rough waters in the in the investigation and writing of it. And so that's that's kind of what I decided to do. Is I mean, here she she's proclaimed her innocence uh, all of her life, and she in fact, after she got out of um, prison, has led an ex- a, 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 an exemplary life, just like an ordinary citizen. She held the same job for twenty three years at a medical facility, um, had friends, went down to Mexico with her friends, all the sort of things that kind of normal adults do, which makes her even more interesting. Um, but in, 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 in any event, that was, that was kind of the, the pull watching her on this show and kind of going, no one has ever really looked at her participation or lack thereof without any under, with, with the skills to sort it out and without any underlying bias. Well, I just want to uh, let our listeners know just how wonderfully written your new book is, you know, from the facts of the case. And, uh, like you were just saying, how you juxtapose the two versions. It, it was excellently done. The psychological aspects, uh, the media legacy, you know, but in particular, um, I really loved your description of the characters and of the land itself, you know, from the Platte River to the ice and snow, the earth, and uh, even the mud, which really becomes a character since uh, <laughs> much of this crime spree is them just getting stuck in the mud over and over again. That's right. That's right. One of the things I wanted to do was to uh, set the time. I love place. Every Well, most of the books I've written, place is a strong theme in it. Uh, and obviously place here is is critical to it because we are talking the heartland. Uh, and that it sets up the scene in a very dramatic fashion. But what was the world like in 1958? What was Nebraska like in 1958? What was Lincoln like in 1958? And that uh, I wanted to introduce Nebraska in a new way to uh, to the citizens of the world, because I know how it's looked at this flat place you drive through on your way from New Jersey to L.A. Um, There's a lot more to it than that. And I wanted to get into that. And also, I had fun setting the time. I mean, 1958, if you're as old as either one of you, if you're the same age as you guys, uh, 1958 probably seems like the like the mid ages, uh, and it's probably hard to imagine what the world was like. I mean, it it's there weren't seatbelts in the cars, you know. It's just just look at it that way. And in America was in still in the post World War II glow. We had defeated evil. Um, we were the most prosperous, strongest country in the world. The world was safe, basically. Yeah, you you had to threat of nuclear war, but it 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 wasn't the same thing as having an enemy on your shores or somebody that had to be defeated. So you know the world made sense, and crime, particularly murder, uh, was usually a motivated act that you were uh, burglarizing somebody. It was domestic violence. It happened in the course of a rape. It was a brawl in a bar that got out of control. Um, it was somebody that was sleeping with your wife, uh, or it was a mafia hit where somebody had ratted out. It it all had a purpose to it. And four fifths of the homicides in 1958 were domestic. Were, the people knew each other, and that's kind of the setting. And out of nowhere. In that accepted setting in the in the country, but particularly in Nebraska, if you lived the good life, the good life was was available. If you kind of followed the rules and played played it the way it was, it was it was safe. I mean, things you, you didn't worry about going to a mall, you didn't worry about going to church, um, and something untoward and violent happening. It just was not in your consciousness at all. So if you went to church, had your kids, had a job, lived by the rules, you know, life worked, basically. Out of that, that's the setup for Starkweather, then killing people without a motive. Um, I mean, he had a motive in a way, but not not really. It was whoever got in his way. Um, but he could have gotten out of there without killing anybody, But um, if that's all he was going to do. But here, here's this random psychopath that is shooting people to shoot people. And in fact, getting a great deal of satisfaction out of it. 
and pleasure out of it. It was a, a sort of psychopathology that was new to to uh, to the world of psychology. Here, here's somebody. He's a psychopath, obviously, but he's acting it out in a way that um, brings great satisfaction. It, it, he, he was a happy when he was executed. He was a happy man. He was right where he wanted to be. The only thing he regretted was that his girlfriend Carol wasn't sitting on his lap when they threw the switch. Um, That's crazy. I love his last words too. Uh, what's the rush? <laughs> <laughs> And I've had that I've had that verified too by that by the daughter of the warden who uh, heard him say it. Yeah, nice. So I guess it'd be nice to talk a little bit more about Charlie. Um, you know, that makes a lot of sense. What you said about the world making sense to a lot of people, and then here comes this guy just blazing through. You know, the news doing these horrific things. Charlie would later write of having visions of death, which manifested itself in the form of a half woman, half bear, and of sailing away in a coffin to hell. What is your take on Charlie's writings? Do you think he was just trying to come off as, you know, having a bit of that motive that, you know, it didn't really seem like he he had to the press? And do you think he was really haunted by these visions? Or do you think he truly was just a monster and he was just sort of like muddying up the waters to to throw people for a loop and, and not see that he was just pure evil? Those are good questions. Um, let me set, let me describe Charlie a little bit to set the scene. He's, uh, there are seven members in his family, he lives in a, I don't want to say poor as his mother worked, but uh, it was an, it was a poor part of town. He himself was five foot five, uh, had thick, uh, glowing red hair that's been described as as just like uh, Lucy of I Love Lucy or Bozo the Clown. He was bow legged, and he had a lisp, and he was slightly pigeon toed. In spite of all that, he also looked kind of like James Dean. It's a very strange. Um, concoction of, of of images. But he was, from the day he went to school, he was ridiculed. I mean, just, just imagine, we all know how cruel kids can be. And he's got all these characteristics. And the more they made fun of him and taunted him, the, the more withdrawn he became. Until one day he comes home and he tells his father the story of what had happened to him. And he says, look, his father had contacted the school who had done nothing about the problem. His dad looks at him and says, look, from now on, when that stuff happens, get him, smack him. You don't need to run off anymore. You don't need to cry in a corner. Charlie then took that to heart. And I think his pathology started about that point because then he realized that he could engender fear in other people that he could hit him in the face, that he could drop him to the ground, uh, and that he could get his own reputation as a tough guy. The, the taunting went on, but then it was behind, or the making fun of him went, went on, but, but from then on it was behind his back. So you have somebody who now has learned to cope with the world by hammering it. And my older brother was in school with him and saw him fight a couple times. And it was beyond the scope of the normal junior high school uh, boys fighting. Then then normally they would, you know, get each other. They would wrestle around. Somebody would throw a punch. Somebody would get the other one in a headlock. They'd fall down on the ground and somebody would give. And that was the fight. When Charlie knocked somebody down, he often would kick him in the head or kick him in the stomach, which was out, outside the bounds. So People began to fear him, which gave him an identity at that point. Uh, his fantasy world started to expand. I've, this is not only from his memoir, but from the criminologist who interviewed him for 40 hours. And he drew a picture of the death that you're, um, that you're talking about. And the, the fantasy world then that started to grow inside of him was that he played out that role in, into becoming a either a sheriff or an outlaw or a guy who had a gang or whatever. 
and he ended up uh, being a murderer or took lives in the process of these. And the fantasy world grew and grew and grew until it became as rich as his real life. About this time, he met Carol, which was the last key ingredient in the fantasy. He needed a girlfriend. He needed a girlfriend to be the hero to, to be the killer for, to stick up for her. Uh, and that kind of put it in place. And the fantasy, when he, the arrangement he made with this figure of death that, that showed up in his window, and then he also dreamt about, was that he would go out in a blaze of glory, it would be a short life, uh, would be a violent life. And then he would end up on the side of death where things he was assured were nowhere near as bad as they were where he was. Um, that fantasy got richer. Carol played into it somewhat. And his first murder, in my view, this is my view, it's not the accepted take on Charlie, was that he needed to move then from the fantasy into reality. The fantasy itself was bumping up against reality. He was still being treated as a little jerk. Uh, he had been, you know, people that worked with him and so forth still made fun of him, didn't take him seriously. So this other world of fantasy, he was, he was the, he, he was the outlaw. He was the, the guy who, you know, shot people down if they got in his way. So he needed to move into that world, make that his world. And that, that resulted in the first killing of um, Robert Colvert, who was a gas station attendant on the outside of town. And I, my view is Charlie really did that as a, as an experiment, as a way of finding out if a, he could do it and B what he would feel like if he did do it. And it was a very successful event for him. He, by his, um, by his writings and by his interviews, he felt good. Uh, the, the aggression of violent aggression um, and that's not new to psychopathology, although you don't hear it talked about very much. Um, aggression for certain people, uh, for, for violent people, is a rewarding experience for them. Uh, they don't come out feeling bad or guilty. They, you know, it's it's probably the reason they do it. Anyway, Charlie, it was a, it was a successful event for Charlie. So at this point, you then have him at about 16, 17 um he's met carol i'm sorry you'd be about he was 17 when they met 19 when they went on the rampage so the fantasy turning into reality would have been uh when he was 18 and then he had met her uh and was with her but always claimed that she didn't know about the shooting of the gas station attendant she always said she didn't either and there was no indication that she had so now you really have kind of a new Charlie. You have someone who's now, he sees the path. Uh, he sees the path forward that uh, that matches, that goes along with the covenant that he's made with death. And now he's got the girl and now he's got the gun and now he knows how it works and how it's going to pay off for him. So he's basically set up the rampage, which then starts in January of 1958. Hey, horror movie lovers. We want to let you know about an upcoming film called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, an homage to 80 slashers movies. They got an Indiegogo campaign giving away all kinds of fun swag, so give them some support and love. There's a link in the show notes. That's I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, the Indiegogo campaign. Yeah, um, one thing that uh, stands out for me and that you really cover in the book is is the a, the actual brutality of these crimes, you know? Because, like, often the romanticized version in the films and the songs, they just gloss right over the fact that, like, a toddler had its head bashed in, was brutally stabbed, and there was necrophilia, sexual mutilation, and the vicious stabbing of a helpless bound woman, you know? And even just the, the shootings themselves were like massive overkill headshots 
done multiple times, which would just, you know, destroy the victim's head. And uh, like even as gory as natural born killers is, there's no baby killing, no sexual mutilation. Instead, the violence is, you know, stylized and made almost operatic. Um, what do you think of how the romanticization of violence that's come out of this case and how the real horror is often just glossed over? Yeah, I mean, that's let me put it in a let me frame it as a certain way. The other element that goes on with Starkweather in this rampage is the advent of television. Uh, mm-hmm. And it had been around since 1952, but 1958, 80% of the people had television. The scene went on for about a week. So the national television networks picked it up. They had just managed to connect uh, electronically with their affiliate stations like in Lincoln. So Huntley Brinkley were were uh, covering it every night. So all of a sudden, and they had pictures of Starkweather and Carol. So all of a sudden, these people are in your in your living room and you're seeing them. And it's kind of it takes on this romantic aspect that you're talking about, because the only thing it connects with is Bonnie and Clyde. It's not at all like Bonnie and Clyde, really. I mean, you've got two kind of young people there, but in both situations, but it's it's not at all. But because you know, there were a lot of factors that went into it, one of them was he kind of looked like James Dean if you didn't take a picture of his whole physique. And she was young. She was 14, and he's 19 by this point. And she's kind of cute. I mean, she's tough, and she looks tough, but she also is kind of cute. So I said... It's a it's a it's a great combination, um, and people are pulled into it while it's going on. It's not history; they're watching it unfold in their living room, and this is kind of where violence comes out into the public square. You know, it's not it's not just in a in a newspaper anymore, uh, or somebody talking, you know, writing a history about it. It's happening right then and there, and the fascination was instant not just in Nebraska, but around the country and around the world. It's the first matching of, 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 of violence and television. And that gave it that kind of romantic thing that you're talking about. Um, and they didn't have a trial on any of the real vicious murders that you just referred to, like the little girl that he bashed her head in and th- threw a knife in her throat, all the ones that you went through. Uh, they were, he confessed to everything right away. Um, so that took away a lot of the details that would have otherwise been in a trial uh, and highlighted. So people, they, you know, they they knew that he murdered Carol King and, he, and, and Bob Jensen and so forth. But what he was tried for was a felony murder that didn't involve any of these uh, more horrific crimes that you talked about it was there on the record but it was kind of it was kind of easy to uh skim over him and and look instead at this romantic figure and it, it's it's a startling to me that it still exists um badlands the movie by um malik i can't think of his first name right terry. now was terry malik was this like his first movie and sissy spacek was in it she played carol and Martin Sheen played Charlie. Uh, they kind of continued this. They set up the romantic thing to really right. be the story. And even Malik says it's just it's just a fairy tale. You know, he wasn't really replicating what they did uh, or who they were. But it got taken in the culture as a version, uh, as as the version of, of what happened. So it kind of got um, it set up that that romantic version. And that kind of even natural born killers kind of perpetuated and, and Bruce Springsteen singing a song about it. Uh, and in the song, he's in Charlie's head. He's kind of almost empathetic to Starkweather. I, that, I wouldn't go that far, but he's not talking about uh, what a cruel, incredibly cruel human being he was. Um, he's not condemning him. Not at all. Not at all. If he listened to it, he's, there is, and he, I've heard, I've seen him talk about uh, the song, and, uh, and it's he, he's not really sympathetic to him. It's just the angle he took when he's when he empathetic, wrote it. but not sympathetic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm. It's a beautiful song. 
It is. There's some great versions of it. I think I mentioned it in the book. There's an Irish singer who does a version of it that's absolutely fantastic. It's more haunting than Charlie's in a way. So I guess maybe to look at the the other side of the coin of that romanticism, um, that intersection between the violence and the television instilled so much fear and terror in addition to fascination in in the general public. Uh, you know, there were people went into panic mode and um, something that your family in Lincoln was actually dealing with. There, there was the siege like mentality, which appears to have fundamentally changed the way of life, you know, across the country, but I'm, I'm sure very much more so in Lincoln. Can you talk about what, what it meant for your town and the people that lived there? Sure. The facts that set it up were that the cops couldn't find him. He'd kill somebody. They'd think his first killing in 58 was when he killed the Carol's family, mother, stepfather, and little sister. And when they found that, he had left. They were they were sure that he was still in Lincoln. He was in a town outside of Bennett then. Then when he kills people in Bennett, they're, they're, and they find those bodies, they're sure that he's left and gone to see his brother in Washington. It turns out he's come back to Lincoln and he's killed people there. And that's what absolutely freaks people out. It's just a randomness of it. Uh, he just showed up at the board's house when he and ended up killing them. And second, that the cops can't find him. They can't even see him. He's rolling around Lincoln, coming and going to these small towns around there, killing people in the small town and coming back and killing people in Lincoln. And the cops are at least two steps behind him. So that kind of sets up the hysteria because uh, they really come to believe that he could be in your garage when you go out to get in your car. And he could have been. That's the, that They had the yeah. facts that that hysteria up. It wasn't it wasn't uh, you know, totally fictional. Or, I mean, there, there was a basis for it. And that that hysteria was really kind of traumatized the town. I mean, they had the National Guard out. They had 200 members of the National Guard patrolling the city in uh, jeeps and with machine guns on it. And there were people roaming around looking for redheaded people in in Packards. And some scary incidents almost happened. When they then found him, uh, there was a, really just about a 48-hour period where it all came to came to fruition. The murders, they're finding the bodies, and then him being captured in, in Wyoming and the relief that went with him went with that. The relief was, okay, he's no longer going to kill us, but look how scared we were, you know? We were freaked out. And what's he doing coming from Lincoln? I mean, yeah, we could see this in the in the Bronx or L.A., but this is Lincoln, Nebraska. This is the heartland. How did he spring from our soil uh, to commit something like this? And, and I don't mean to overstress it, but this was a brand new experience in in the in, in this country. There had been a couple like serial killers uh, and mass murders in the past, but they were way way in the past, and the, and there wasn't any publicity about it. I mean, yeah, it would get. It would get carried, but it was never you are there sort of thing. The people were there for this. So now they've got to deal with the fact of how scared and how traumatized they were, the culture was, and where he came from, and how did he how did he, you know, spring, how did he end up coming from Nebraska into being this? And they were kind of embarrassed in the national in the national image, in, in the national view too, because um you know, if there was supposed to be one safe place in the world, it would be some, basically Lincoln was a really large farming community in those days. And um, just safety for you and your children was kind of taken for granted. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Gina. And together we are Men's Wellness Theater, or at least we try. Uh, we try to survive it. <laughs> We're the hosts of The Worst, a podcast where I deep dive horrible subjects and tell the story to Gina. And I tell terrible, tasteless jokes to kind of break up the awful, soul-crushing details that you bring us. I try and you try, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, stop being upset. We are trying our best. And honestly... We're weird people. We find this makes it a little more palatable to get through the horrible details of some of the worst true crime. 
Yeah, because otherwise, I just want to take an ice pick to my own eardrums. I can't do it anymore. No. So if you're the type of person who finds, you know, Weekend at Bernie's the most hilarious movie ever, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Absolutely. Just look for Mental Illness Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you happen to use for podcasts. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting how, like, um, the whole greaser image back in the 40s and 50s, they, they it was terrifying to people. And they saw them as a real threat to society. But, um, you know, as as cultures moved on, you know, now we see like the Fonz and Happy Days and like the movie Grease. <laughs> but back then, that was like a real people were terrified of these switchblade carrying thugs and leather jackets. Yeah. And, that's and, you know, Charlie wore his hair like that. He had this great thick head of hair and he brushed it over and back and back on the sides and a ducktail uh thick hair and then he'd pull a couple of uh, curls down over his forehead and he he was the epitome of it and some people tried to say that that's the culture that he came from which was you know like you say that culture was kind of a kind of a creation really uh there was not a lot of violence not not like the, the not like the motorcycle gangs you you have today but yeah, you rolled your T-shirt. You you know you 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 rolled a pack of uh, luckies up in your uh, T-shirt shoulder, and uh, you wore your pants low without a belt. And yeah, they were tough in a way. They certainly were tougher than the middle class kids, um, like you know where I grew up. But but I don't remember anybody stabbing anybody to death. A lot of it was attitude and appearance. But it did scare people. It I mean nobody. <laughs> If you go back and read some of those articles from the time period when when Elvis surfaced and uh, movies like Rock Around the Clock and that sort of stuff, uh, they they it it really shook them up. Uh, they didn't understand it at, at all, and they thought it was a real threat. Which, like you say, in retrospect, it was just kind of a it was just kind of a movement that they were playing out. You know, I think most of those guys went on to, to live a fairly decent life, but there was nothing like this. It didn't set this up at all. You couldn't see what happened coming from that. But, you know, I mean, they were actually doing things like um, some of the small towns in the raft, one of them in particular outlawed wearing leather jackets to school. Really? Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> and somebody else outlawed ducktails. And required boys to, and it was all kind of silly when you look at it, but it really, they didn't get it. You know, they just didn't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. We've been covering up uh, like, you know, more modern punk rock stuff, punk rock murders and crimes. And uh, it, it, you see that same kind of thing that this terror. And it was interesting. I thought because um they actually used the word punk. It didn't mean what it means now, but like the, one of the headlines was punk's bloodstained string ends at 10. Yeah. But um, I just think like this fascination with uh, youth culture, you think it, it really put a, a stain on the truth of what happened? Like um, everyone was so scared of juvenile delinquency and greasers. So when they were tried, Carol didn't really get a fair trial. And I think a lot of uh, her innocence was eclipsed by this idea of juvenile delinquency that everyone was so obsessed with. I, I think there was some of that to it, but with with her, there was another thing going on in 1958, and that was that good girl. There was a good girl. There were good girls and bad girls, right? Mm. That's the way they shook out. You either had sex or you didn't, and the and the good girls didn't even let you feel their breasts. I mean, it was that's the way it shook out in a town like Lincoln. I can't speak for like Brooklyn, but uh, and she was a bad girl. She right. was a bad, I mean, perceived that way, definitely. And she was perceived to be a bad girl because she was poor. She came from a very poor part of town, which we would call, they didn't use the phrase then, we would call them white trash. And she was tough and she had an attitude. And that's that's what sunk her as much as anything. And not so much a juvenile delinquency thing, but that she appeared tough. She ran off with Charlie, so of course she's sleeping with him. And 14-year-old girl having sex was not heard of 
I mean, if it was hurt, still I'd shocking. Sure. I mean, to this day, I think it's yeah. It's, to me, it's shocking. You know, that's pretty young. Yeah, and they were all they were all fascinated. You know, rumors got out that she was pregnant from Charlie, and that she had his baby right. in prison, and her sister adopted the baby. All that stuff. It was a great fascination, and rumors. Some of them I didn't didn't even put in there because they were too crazy. But all sorts of of nasty girl rumors uh, were were around her, and she definitely that's the image that she that she had now. The truth of it is a whole nother conversation. But that that that's if you if you wanted to name it, I guess you'd call it something like classism or something. I mean, right. the, the whole world looked down their nose at her. Not so much Charlie. Charlie got a break. You know, he was a boy. His double and edged sword. Yeah, he, yeah, he was the guy. He was the tough guy. That's okay. But for a girl to to play into that and ride with him uh, was 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 uh, you you know I don't know how to say it. It was you couldn't have any worse a reputation than than that girl had i was gonna ask about uh the sexuality of her and charlie because uh it's it's really interesting you know he claims that they're they're having sex all over that they're on the sofa that in the car during the spree they're having sex but she says that he never actually penetrated her that it was like her and then later she would claim that he was actually impotent and it's just really bizarre when you juxtapose the way she says that he was like gentle with her and w- would begin and she would say it hurts and he would stop yeah. but then you have this awful sexual assault and mutilation of carol king you know like post-mortem no doubt and uh such a bizarre character dichotomy what what do you make of all that what does that say well uh she disputes as an uh, as an adult post post conviction post prison that she ever had sex with him. And she even said she went, after she got out, she went to a uh, doctor who confirmed that her hymen was still intact. Um, is kind of empathetic as I am to Carol. It's just not believable. It's just not. I mean, she said they had uh, anal sex. Didn't she say that? Yeah, and she admitted to that. And during that time period, now Carol was interrogated under the worst possible circumstances, but even... In the interrogation several times and in the trial itself, um, she had the opportunity to deny it, and she didn't. She said, well, when we were, when we, after we left Lincoln and we were on our way to Wyoming, Charlie pulled over and said he wanted to have sex, so we had sexual intercourse. Um, the other incidences of, of him being impotent and not being able to penetrate, it could all be true, too, you know, but they don't really lead to the conclusion that they didn't have sex it's just it's just um she contradicts it too many times and it's just not not believable right but i mean she could still have her hymen intact because he says he she said he just like kind of put the tip in and then he maybe he got off we're getting into some gross talk but uh i i do find it kind of fascinating like just this naivety and 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 like the this gentleness almost with her and I don't know strange I mean you could bring it back to what Harry was talking about earlier with he she was part of his fantasy so she he you know treated her differently than I don't know crazy Um, or his immaturity as well does his how sexually mature was he she was his only girlfriend right and uh, yo I'm sure I've that he's just all the evidence yeah points to that that he that he he had had a girlfriend but nothing really came of it as far as i can tell so that was probably the first experience for him and somebody living you know living in that moving into that fantasy world more and more and kind of pulling her in behind him i don't know where that leaves you in terms of sexual desire or or ability you know but um she did not keep this um she didn't get a document from this doctor and he was never identified. So that all sounded like, and I don't know why she, you know, I don't know why she'd be so embarrassed about it these days. You know, um, you can see it when she was 14 or 15, but I mean, he's executed. She goes to prison. How important is that story really to it? You know, maybe it just it's- fit with her, you know, she wanted to profess her innocence and it was just another way to kind of, drive home the point that she was not as partnered with him as the media and history would have us believe. 
I think that's right. I think that's a good description of it, actually. I guess, so I'm kind of curious, Matthew and I spoke earlier, and we both agree with your theory that Starkweather most likely committed the murders before calling Marion's workplace, especially as he seems incredibly impulsive. Uh, Many mass murderers and serial killers have suffered head trauma at one point or another, including Starkweather, and it's said to cause extremely poor impulse control. Does that theory hold weight with you at all? Well, he did suffer two, two head injuries neither of which were um, treated by, by medical professionals, so there's no records on him. He didn't under, there's no evidence that he underwent some personality uh, change because of it at all. One of them was he got hit by a baler when he was, um, he got hit by some farm implement when he was a kid. It was only generally referred to, it was never developed. And then there was a later one when he worked in a, in a company that uh, packaged newspapers for, for delivery. And at that point, something uh, like a baler came loose and hit him in the head. Uh, and he claimed to have headaches from that uh, a lot and claimed that he still had them from that. There was never, he was interviewed by uh, six medical professionals, three of whom were psychiatrists, and they asked about this, but um, about the two in, in, injuries to the head. But the way it would have been developed further is if they had, a, if he had allowed them to do brain imagery of him to see if there was any damage to the brain, and he wouldn't allow it. So um, I was never that impressed by the two injuries. Uh, it just did, it, they didn't have the feel of being that violent. Uh, or, but you know, what am I? I'm not a doctor. Um, but it, it never played much of a, much of a part in the story that mm-hmm. that was a possibility because, uh, you know, brain science was pretty primitive back then to start with. And he, and he shut them down and they, they didn't, as you know, they didn't, Charlie in particular refused any, any, imp, any implication that what he had done had been a result of, of, um, some mental defect that he was insane or he wanted to be his famous line was nobody remembers a crazy man and nobody, nobody's going to, you know, remember a man who did this because of damage to his brain. He didn't want that story out there either. You know, he wanted to be the cowboy going out with his guns blazing. Well, if he couldn't get his guns blazing, he could sure be executed in fancy fashion. Mm -hmm. So along those same lines, what about the bullying? What is your take on the bullying? Because that's another thing that a lot of serial killers claim to have suffered in their childhood. Uh, We did an episode a little bit, a couple months ago on freeway killer Patrick Kearney, who's thought to have murdered dozens, and he puts all of the blame on how he was bullied as a child. What do you think of of Charlie and his bullying in his past? Do you think that contributed to why he did this? Or did he yeah. did he believe that this contributed to why he did this? He did. He did. And he didn't. I think uh, he didn't want to lay it all off on that because that's not much like of a James Dean yeah. thing. But he in his memoir and in his he's pretty explicit about it. And if you yeah. some of the some of the bullying that that went on, it you know, wasn't just beating up on a weaker kid. They they went after his, you know, association with his mother his bow legs. I mean, uh, and my, it, it, it definitely, it definitely impacted him because there's nobody else in that family that shows any deviance at all. Six other kids. And he, he, he loved, I mean, he got along with all of his siblings, got along with his mom, had some problems with his dad, but he wasn't uh, a troubled kid, you know, from you know, when you, when you look at him from other angles, he was doing pretty good up until he went to school and ran into this. Now, people go through that and worse and don't turn into murderers. And if if, yeah, if, yeah. if anybody can ever come up with an answer to that, they're going to be a Nobel Prize winner because no one understands why some people um, turn into, in, into serious psychopaths and, and other people subject to this, you know, with similar genetic structures, subject to the same influences, go on and, you know, own an insurance company in, in uh, Bassett, Bassett, Nebraska for 10 years. Um, so he, he didn't, he laid it out in detail, but he didn't really try to excuse, to, to lay it all off on that either. Yeah. We did William Bonin and he had a brother who went through all the same things 
the same exact things he did. They they were put in an orphanage and terribly, like just really abused terribly. But his brother turned out just to be a normal person, and he went on to be you know this insane serial killer. Yeah, when they That's tore it. up his painting, man, that made me cry. I swear, I was like, oh. And they glue his know, thing to the desk. Oh, <laughs> do you know how flattering that is to an author to realize they wrote something that made somebody cry? <laughs> no. right. um, that, well, that story. I mean, he was very close to his mother. They, he, he didn't have. I mean, he was. He tried to please her. He shined his shoes every day before going to school. Mm. He painted pictures of her and wrote poems to her and everything. Uh, and this one day, he. He, he painted a picture of her and he rolled it up and he was going to take it home to uh, show her. And the kids got on him that day. Now, this is his story, but it's something it'd be hard to think he made up um, and ended up following him and taunting him and teasing him. And then eventually one of the boys took the picture, the rolled up uh, painting from his hands and tore it, tore it up in front of him and made fun of him. And uh, he he wrote that once in his memoir, but he never goes back to it, you know, and says, tries to explain his behavior. Um, maybe he didn't think that way um, as, you know, those being the setup for the, for the, but he, but he doesn't ever go back. He tell he talks about it, but he doesn't come back and put it in some sort of a framework for this is what happened to me. Um, so, yeah, those, you know, those, um, people like you just talked about there are absolutely, absolutely fascinating and nobody can explain it. Nobody can explain it. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. You know, I found it interesting that Carol Ann's classmates went and raided her locker to get souvenirs. And I think that really just goes to show how obsessed people are with true crime and uh, as a true crime author what do you think fuels this public fascination with a uh, crime now that's a new question i'm going to mark you guys down for that one that's a good one uh well they when they and that, that's one of the i had the book almost written and i came across this statement uh in some obscure little newspaper uh, and I verified it that they had gone over there because this happened. She was a she was back in Lincoln on on Friday night and put into a mental hospital because they didn't have juvenile facilities, as you recall. And Monday, two days later, the the kids in the school went in and wanted um, really souvenirs because by then she was on the evening news. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, people are fascinated with any sort of major major deviance from the norm. And when it gets into, for, for example, myself, um, the books that I write all involve a murder. There has to be a murder for me. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to spend two or three years of my life writing about some white collar criminal or even some imposter or this guy that just got convicted on bit, bitcoins. Um, that's crime in a way. But the real fascination is with the criminal mind that kills people. And what's behind that? We can all speculate. Yeah, well, this is murder coaster. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, part of it is just the the darkness of the human experience and the human right. personality, and that's the, that's as dark as it gets when you take another person's life. And I think everybody wonders to some extent if what it would take for them to become a murderer if they have that capacity in them. And I, I believe absolutely every person that, that alive, given the right circumstances. Could could take another person's life if it was threat, you know, their threat or the threat to their child or something like that. And I think that kind of scares people in a way that they just like kind of project anything like that and the, the darkness out on out into the world as opposed to something that might be inside themselves. 
That's a great answer. That's really fascinating. And, you know, Matthew and I are actually both horror fiction writers. So we get asked often, like, why do you write horror fiction? Why are people drawn to horror? Why do you, you know, why do you like horror? Why do you like horror films? Um, and I think what, what you what just is, said about, sorry? What, what, what is, what's an example of horror fiction? Um, I mean, well, you uh, said I that Stephen of... King was it was inspired by this case, right? Yeah. Okay. You call he's you classify him as horror fiction. Okay, I got you. I I think Matthew and I probably cover a pretty wide range too. Like I write um, some gothic horror and psychological things, and um, I don't know, Matthew. Why don't I don't want to classify you? Why don't you say transgressive? Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> transgressive with, and crime and crime and, and a lot of us with crime. What was the first word you used? transgressive what does that mean uh it means things that like over step boundaries and cross lines uh you know they, they chuck pop william burroughs would be an example of you know something that like it's kind of shocking and and, and breaks uh moral barriers mm -hmm. that kind of thing <laughs> yeah look at look at the comedians uh from the 40s and 50s uh who were um, their names are yeah, Lenny Bruce. He was he was the biggest scandal in the country. Right. Now he would be considered so tame you wouldn't even mention him. Yeah, I love Lenny so, Bruce. He broke a lot of barriers. He made you know he he uh he did a lot for um the First Amendment, you know the freedom of speech. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he just he would go on stage and just say one word and they'd come out and arrest him. I know. I've seen <laughs> films of it. Oh, um, you know what? This you can't help but to think of the clutter murders which uh, happened not long after this in neighboring Kansas, you know, with that whole greaser thing. And I, f I feel like I can detect a little Truman Capote in your work. Uh, was In Cold Blood an inspiration to you as a true crime writer at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it was it was a huge event in American literature, obviously. I read it about every five or six years, and I get semi-traumatized all over again. You know, it, it's like I know what's coming, I know what he's going to say, but he is so seductive in the way he pulls you into the story um, that I that it's it's irresistible in a really kind of weird way. But yeah, it's very it was it's very inspiring. What they what they referred to, to in Cold Blood as was a nonfiction novel, mm -hmm. and what they really meant by that uh, is that. It's true, but you can use novelistic techniques in telling the story. It doesn't need to read like a newspaper article, mm. which history does. History is just like a big newspaper article, right? It doesn't have tension. It doesn't have explosions. It doesn't have right. all the, the things facts. that work in, that you have to have in a novel, you know? So the, the nonfiction novel thing, well, yeah, you can play with the facts somewhat in order to make it read more like a novel and to be more powerful. And that's that's really was the advent of that. But there were it also I mean, that you're talking about what set up the fascination with murders. That one, I'm sure, did had a huge impact on the culture. People were interested in they found themselves. They were probably scared at how fascinated they found themselves to be with that story. Um, he also, you know, over overplayed his hand a couple of times, too. There were some uh, it's a little bit too much detail for this, but. There's some scenes that he kind of um, created out of that whole cloth in there, but no, it was a had a huge impact on me. Huge impact. That's such a wonderful description of it. You've actually like I I read and reread that book as like a young reader, and you just like reminded me of you know what you said of how seductive you find yourself. Just it's definitely one of those books. And again, a brilliant example of how you said it's it's using novelistic techniques. You read that book like a novel. One more page, one yeah. more chapter. You're drawn in. I mean, yeah. it's just it's it's captivating. It 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 it, it destroyed him too in the end. Uh, he did write some stuff after that, but you know he fell in um, he fell in love with Perry Smith. There's right. pretty good to that, and then he he couldn't get the book published until they were executed. Yeah. So they kept putting it off, and I mean, so that really screwed him up he's waiting for this guy to die so his book can come out and but he's mm. in like you know he he i don't my view is he never really recovered from that i remember he was working on a book about charlie manson and went to all the trials 
It's a shame that that never happened. That would have been Truman Capote does Charlie Manson. That would have been yeah. something, man. Yeah, I mean, and he had another book he had gotten about half done. It's been put together uh, as a short. It's called Hand Carved Coffins. You know, that story, all those pieces had to be there, you know? I mean, here's this little squib in the New York Times at the bottom of page 81, farm family in Kansas murdered. You know, so what? So what? You know, that wasn't dramatic at all. It certainly wasn't. But somehow that two lines connected with his brain. And off off we went to the races. That's not going to happen again, you know? I mean, he can write he can write something else that's really good. But trying to replicate that through going other crimes to me was 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 a part of his downfall because he could never come up with all those elements in the same place, same time. Yeah. So we've talked about the crimes. We've talked about the characters. We've talked about the culture and the social ramifications of this case. But I'm interested in your writing process, you as a writer, what what was the essence of what you were going for and how did you set out to accomplish that? I was away at prep school when the killings happened, um, but I continued to grow up in the culture of it, of them. And as I said earlier, I kind of stayed away from it because I sensed that doing it researching it, I was going to be researching my own life in those years. And they were tough years for me. They, my father died, my sister died, and there was a lot of alcoholism. It was, a, it was a not, not a good time. And as I started researching it, um, everywhere I looked for Charlie, I found myself. And so that ended up being, I guess, cathartic in a way, but also left me much more vulnerable to telling the stories of the murders themselves. Um, you know, I've written books about a young girl being murdered and um, death to innocent people and so forth. And I've always maintained kind of the journalistic distance from it. Um, this one, I couldn't maintain that distance at all. So it was a real um, tough experience in a way. I mean, I ended up the the reality of what they did and the killings became so powerful in my mind. I became so absorbed with it, so obsessed with it, um, that every killing that I went through, like the one you mentioned, uh, Matthew, of uh, Harold King, I, I relived the murder. You know, I mean, I went out and I saw where it happened. I knew the whole situation. I understood the time. I understood the people. And uh, it was really rough. You know, but it was what needed to happen with that story. Let's get to the, you know, let's get to the truth of the matter. Like Matthew said, let's get rid of this romantic stuff, you know. Um, but so the end of it was very kind of like a journey of going home and so forth. And I'll just finish with um, the missing person was, of course, Carol. And no one knew where she was. Her lawyer didn't know. Her cousins in Lincoln didn't know where she was. Um, we knew that she had been, um, she got married. She had a couple of stepsons. Her husband had died of a, in a car accident. She had had a stroke and a heart attack. And we knew she was in a medical facility somewhere. And I kept kind of thinking, well, I'm going to have to, um, I'm just not going to be able to talk to her. And yeah, I can't find her. And uh, I talked to everybody I could time and again. And uh, no, we don't know where she is. And uh, I was kind of trying to let go of it. But every time I would talk to a reporter or a journalist, they'd say, have you talked to Carol? Have you talked to Carol? Have you talked to Carol? And it's like um, I couldn't just say I couldn't dismiss it the way I was trying to do it. I had to keep trying to do it. So one day I'm sitting in my car or in St. Petersburg, Florida. My wife, she goes into Trader Joe's and I'm sitting out in the car, just not even thinking about it. And I get a phone call. And the phone call tells me where she is and gives me the name of the town and the name of the nursing home and the phone number. Just like that. In, in, in every book I've written, something like that happens that you don't make happen. Something opens up for you. Somebody, pers some person 
brings you decides to become your helper, your angel, you know, and, and opens doors is one of the more exciting things about researching is you never know where it's going to come from, but it does. And this one, I just sat there stunned. And, uh, two days later I got on a plane and flew out to where she was and, um, walked into the nursing home and talked to her. And that, that's the closing scene of the book is my encounter with her. And it, the last part of the book is the epilogue, which talks about what I've just said to you. And then um, it just so happened that after I had written it, it was when I went out to see her and spent about an hour with her before being kicked out of the nursing home. Um, so it, it actually turned out to be a nice ending to the book. That whole epilogue just floored me from you being at, the house where you would hit the tree with your car and the tree was now gone to going to that cellar and looking down in there. And like you say, recreating the crime and then going and seeing her in the nursing home. And now she's mute and on a wheelchair. Like I was laying in bed and it was late at night and I finished it and I had to put the book down, go get dressed and walk around. I couldn't sleep. <laughs> it, it had, I was floored. It was amazing. Wow. It was such a great ending. And then he messaged well, me about it in the middle of the night. So he was held so wrapped. <laughs> he then uh, had to write to me at like 1 a.m. Really good to hear. I, I appreciate you guys telling me that because it was a, uh, it's tricky business writing about yourself. Um, and I would never write a memoir because I couldn't find the voice. And this you didn't is murder anybody thing. either, did you? Yeah, no. <laughs> I, got a lot, I got a lot of trouble, as, as you remember. Yeah, you, but, were, you were a hellion, huh? <laughs> A little juvenile delinquent yeah, yourself. Just, you know, and it was kind of like, okay, then we just grew out of it, you know. Just, okay, one day I'm not going to do that stuff anymore because I'm going to start paying a big consequence for it. So I guess we weren't really serious uh, juvenile juvenile delinquents like like Charlie was. But one thing that, that um, one decision that was made in there early on was, was I going to wrap uh, my personal experience into the telling of the story itself and i've read books like that uh and it's always disconcerting for the author to start talking about their involvement in the crimes i mean it pisses me off really stay <laughs> out of it stay out of it tell me what happened and if you want to do that's what i said okay but i'll do an epilogue and that's how that that's how that came about and some people think you know they'll call me up or some they'll be on the editor some editor will call up and say that that that's my favorite part of the book. And I said, it wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be. It was my favorite part, book. too. Oh, God, that's great to hear. I, I appreciate that. I mean, the whole book is is really just a triumph. Like, I... <clears throat> I will go so far as to to count it. I mean, I actually like like things like the stranger beside me where Anne Rule is, you know, in the in the action that she's writing about yeah. and Helter Skelter where we have, you know, Vincent Bugliosi. Yeah. yeah. And I count your book. I mean, it it's just another example to me of a great and, and I I like how you don't have it throughout the whole book and then in the epilogue, but um I mean it, it just compulsively readable and just really you don't get a lot of satisfaction oftentimes when you read true crime books and and I you do feel a lot of that in your book not necessarily with the outcomes or the fact that it happened at all in the first place but the way you wrote the story like truly does accomplish that well that's uh I appreciate your time that you guys have made my day and maybe even the rest of the week it's always good to hear that stuff particularly from people who have read it and who are thoughtful people and come up with interesting questions. You've come up with it with a few. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry N. MacLean, his new book is Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, well, nice talking to you guys. It's been more, more interesting than the average podcast interview. Uh, I'll, I'll assure you that. I appreciate Sounds your time. Great. We so appreciate that. It was wonderful talking to you. My pleasure. You guys are a couple of characters. I'll say that. <laughs> Thank you. Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America, will be available November 28th, 2023, anywhere and everywhere you get books. 
pre-orders are on sale now. Be sure to get yourself a copy. It's great. And don't forget to check out I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, an homage to 80 slasher films and sure to be a cult classic. They have an amazing Indiegogo campaign going on. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We will see you in a couple days with more tales of murder and mayhem. And if you want to reach out and say hey, we're at MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. See you soon.